0: Okay, if you have Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 10. So I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but I record these messages on my iPad. I preach off of the iPad and I actually record the message from my iPad. And um, so this is an older model, it's the iPad too, that has been great, I mean I've just I just love working off of the device, but they just did the latest update on the software, <laughs> iOS 8. Man, and I am, it is just crawling now, you know, with the with the newest uh, update. So I'm sitting here and I bring up the app that does the recording and I press record and I'm waiting and I'm waiting, <laughs> I'm waiting. So you know, you're sitting here like, what is he doing? I'm waiting for the app to stop recording. So. <laughs> So with the tape running now, let me just say what I just said. If you have questions today, I'd like to give time to answer those questions. So please be free. Um, in the I haven't done it here. I've done it in other churches. We've been taking whole Sunday mornings and just kind of put the sermon aside and just leave the time for dialogue. If people have questions, ask the questions, and and we can have like a I don't know, town hall meeting <laughs> <laughs> or something, fireside. Uh, fireside chat. Yeah, and so. Um, Kind of, I'm comfortable with that. So please feel free. So John chapter ten. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. Today we'll finish up John ten. We've been on John for about a year now, and um, um, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I want to talk first a little bit about this past weekend. Nadine and I had an opportunity uh, to spend the weekend uh, with other Vineyard pastors from the region. Vineyard Canada is broken up into regions across uh, the nation, and we're part of what's called the Atlantic region, you know, most of the churches here in the Maritimes. And so every year, about this time, uh, we gather together for a pastor's retreat, and there were about 20 people uh, there this year, and we just had a great time. Uh, Included with the Vineyard Pastors was Andrew and Shirley Bryce from Summerside Community Church. All you guys uh, know them, our church was planted out of Summerside Community Church, and Andrew has relationships with most of these uh, vineyard folks that goes back decades. And so it was just, it was just awesome to have them uh, there with us. Uh, for Nadine and I, we traveled back and forth with Andrew and Shirley. Just makes sense, right? We were, we were all coming from the island. And so we just had a delightful time traveling there and back with them. Lots of laughter, right? Lots of laughter. Andrew likes to tease Nadine, and she likes to give it right back to him. You know? So it <laughs> so, so was lots of fun. And we got to hit Costco on the way back. And they could not be happier. I heard the
1: angels.
0: I know. So when we were, as we approached Costco, she says, can you hear the angels singing? <laughs> one of the highlights of, uh, of this retreat um, is that we had uh, David and Anita Roos uh, with us. They're the new national directors for Vineyard Canada. Some of you might remember that David was with us about a year ago. He did a, um, did a concert here one night and did some teaching. It was great to be uh, with him again. And we got to meet his wife for the first time. Um, we never met her before. It was wonderful to hear David's heart for the lost, the sick, and the poor. It's just part of his passion. And, uh, and Anita is just absolutely delightful. She's lovely. She has, um, well, I didn't know, she has a really strong prophetic gift. She just sees lots of stuff. I must have been, I don't know, 15 times over the weekend when she says, okay, I see this picture. She'd share the picture and we ministered, you know, as you know, as was appropriate, depending on what the Lord had shown us. So her and I connected really well. I was like, you see stuff too? Yeah, I see stuff. <laughs> this was great. As a matter of fact, she even um she gave me a very encouraging uh, word at the end. We we closed with a final blessing and all of us are praying for David and Anita. And and God gave me a prophetic word that I think was for the national team for Vineyard Canada that, that really seemed to uh resonate well with them and so right after that Anita came up and said would you write that down and send it to me and I was like oh yeah no problem I can do that and and then if you're around prophetic people enough you'll begin to notice every once in a while they get this look in their eye and you realize they're looking at you but they're seeing something else at the same time you guys know what that look is you was know, like sometimes they're looking past you it's like what are they looking at what are they paying attention to and so she kind of had that prophetic look in her eye and she just really encouraged me. I thought I'd share it with you what she said. She says, Do you know what a monocle is? It's that like eyepiece that, you know, she says, I see a, I see a monocle on you. She says, and it's and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I really believe God's gonna increase your your sight, your the prophetic gifts that he's given you, the ability to see, even, you know, in, uh, an increase in your ability to see, that's what it was. And then she said, the next thing I know is like is like you were on a catapult and I just watched it. The influence of the revelation God gives you is just going to sweep across the country. That was really nice. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'll tell you what, it felt pretty good after she, um, after she shared it with me. And so I really think together, David and Anita, make a very effective team uh, for our nation. Um, and I think uh, that they complement e- each other very well. Anita quit her job. They're, they're serving together as a team uh, uh, along with uh, other couples across the nation um, as the, you know, like a national task force. Um, uh, But they're serving together as a team. And I I think his heart and and her heart and his gifts and her gifts um, seem to complement each other very well. Like I said, we'd spent time with David before and I got to see the piece of the puzzle that he bring. But I was really encouraged to see the piece that she uh, brought to the puzzle as well. So I think think we're in good hands, guys. I think they're going to do a good job for the vineyard here in Canada. Um, twice uh, while we were there, uh, they took time to minister personally uh, to Nadine and I, and it felt really good. Uh, one of the uh, sessions we had together as a group, there was about twenty of us, and we were just meditating on Scripture together. We were the passage in uh, Matthew 11, where you know Jesus says, "You know, all you are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light." That that part was shed. And somebody had shared an insight, the study they'd done at one point about the term burden that I'd never heard before. And they said in their study they discovered that this is referring to a burden that people were never intended to carry alone. That there are some burdens in life, like a backpack, that it, we're able to put that backpack on, on and we walk with it. He said there are other burdens in life that are like giant boulders and it, it's just absolutely impossible us to carry that burden alone. And God knows it. This was a burden that was to be shared, to be shared with the Lord. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Or to be shared with our brothers and sisters. Others come alongside us and they help us carry the burden. And boy, I just really found a, a place to land uh, in our hearts as, as they uh, ministered to us. Um, it felt like they helped lift some heavy burdens um, off of my heart. For the first time, honestly, I don't, always, I don't always just kind of bare my soul, but honestly, for about the first time in a year, I felt like this heavy sadness had been lifted off of my heart. And it was just good to have it gone. How many of you guys read the book The Shack? Right? And Mac talks about uh, the great sadness that you know, would accompany him. And, and, and it wasn't until after their ministry and prayer of it lifting that I could even identify that it was there, but it reminded me of what we read in the book. The, the other thing I felt was um, there had been this tightness in my neck and my shoulders that nothing I would do, Maybe would try and rub it or help or move the pillow in a different direction. I mean, nothing was seeming to give me the release I needed uh, from the pain in my neck and my shoulders. And that next morning I woke up and for the first time, in, I don't know, I can't remember, it's really been a while, That that pain was gone. You know? My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has rescued me. Proudful. I mean, that's what it felt like to me. It felt really good. I thought you should know that they ministered to us and it, boy, it was really life-giving. Um, just one more bit about the weekend. I'll get on today's message. Rick and Kathy Berry are the leaders of Vineyard Canada's Atlantic region, the region that we're in. Uh, they're the pastors of the Valley Gate Vineyard in Kentville, Nova Scotia, and they'd like to come and visit us. I think they were here about a year ago uh, with Larry and, Larry and Cap, uh, Karen Levy, but this time it'll be just Rick and Kathy. Uh, possibly at the end of the month. We haven't. They need to check their calendars and nail down some dates. So we're going to have some of our vineyard family uh, in town in a few weeks, and they'll get to, you know, just, you know, be with us on Sunday morning and share some life. So. I think, I'm think i looking forward to having some leaders from the, our Vineyard family with us. You know, our Vineyard family, let them just speak into the life of our church. So again, any questions? I just have this, this stirring sense of questions to be answered. Any questions? No? Okay. Um, if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 10, we're going to finish up the chapter with a look at verses 22 to 42 uh, today. I'm going to begin reading in verse 42. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colony. The Jews who were there gathering around him uh, were ga- the Jews who were there gathered around him saying, "How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly." Jesus answered, "I did tell you, but you do not believe." The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Talked in communion about his faithfulness to the covenant promise. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's good news. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods, small g? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I say I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Verse 39, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So I thank you for your word, for the truth that's in your word. Lord, would you instruct us? Would you inspire us? Would you impart to us today life and truth from your spirit so that as a result of the power that's in your written word, we might well become more like Jesus. Do that for us today, Lord. Jesus' name. So just two, just a note, um, two resources were really helpful as I put this message together. I like to give credit where credit's due. Um, I enjoy David Guzik's commentary on the Gospel of John. Most weeks as I prepare messages, I'll kind of read through what he says and, and I'll pick out a couple of things here, a couple of things there that, that seem to be helpful as I go through the text. Today I used, a, for today's message, I used a, a resource I haven't used before, but I really liked it. It's the uh, IVP, the Intervarsity Press New Testament Commentary on John 10. Both of those resources were very helpful for me in preparing today's message. You might want to check out those resources for yourself. So here we are at the end of John 10, and we come to the pinnacle or the climax of Jesus' uh, public ministry. In a sense, Well, in a sense, his his ministry remains public until John 13, but this encounter is the last public teaching before the triumphal entry into into Jerusalem, which, as you know, is the beginning of his passion. So here he speaks as clearly as possible about himself to his opponents. But I just find it astonishing (laughs) that somebody would oppose Jesus. Why? Why does Jesus have opposition? Why are there opponents to Jesus? The, the most loving person that has ever walked the face of the earth. The, the, the absolute perfect expression example of the Father. And yet, he's opposed. So this exchanges his last effort to get them to understand who he is. Later on, in chapter 12... When they try to raise the issue again, he just kind of simply calls them to respond to the things he's already taught them in the past. But we'll get to that soon enough in verses 34 to 36 of chapter 12. So verse 22, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. The festival of dedication. This is about two months after the Feast of Tabernacle that we covered in John chapter 7. And it's a a holiday that most of us know as Hanukkah. It celebrated the cleansing and the rededication of the temple after three years of desecration by the king of Syria. This took place in 164 BC, what's known as the time of the Maccabees. At that time, the Jews had been forbidden uh, to practice their religion, and they were being forced to worship a false god. They were being forced to worship Zeus. And so the king had set up, a, you know, set up an altar in the temple in Jerusalem and pagan sacrifices were offered on it. So this led to what was known as the Maccabean Revolt in 167 BC. A little bit of, a little bit of religious history here. Uh, the, result, uh, the revolt was in, uh, initiated by a priest named uh, Matthias and then carried out under the leadership of his son Judas. Who, know, who is known as Maccabeus, and that name means the hammer. I kind of like that. The hammer showed up and brought them into to the desecration of the temple. The temple was restored; it was rededicated, and proper sacrifices were offered once again uh, in that place. So, in 164 BC, there was an eight-day feast, a celebration uh, to to well to commemorate to to celebrate the fact that this temple that had been desecrated has, has now been restored to its, its rightful purpose. And that's the, that's the feast that they're celebrating here. It's a feast that we understand as, uh, as Hanukkah. A hallmark of the festival is the lighting of lamps, which we, we see continues to this day uh, in the celebration of Hanukkah. And there's a sense of celebration, a great joy, as part of this festival. That's just some of the setting. Context is verse. So verses 23 to 24, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, "How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly." So they're in Solomon's colonnade. A little, a little bit more, you know, backstory information. This is the portico built by Solomon in the eastern part of the temple. It was left undamaged by the Babylonian, uh, by the Babylonians who had destroyed. The rest of the temple in 587 BC, and it remained uh, right up to the time of King Agrippa. The care of the temple was entrusted to Agrippa by by the emperor, emperor at the time, Claudius. Um, and because of its historical value, Claudius did not want it demolished and rebuilt. He wanted it to be uh, to be maintained, the original structure. So they let it be. So Solomon's colonnade is where Jesus is here, It was an open, It was roofed um, 45 foot walkway with double columns that were 38 feet tall. This is pretty interesting architecture. And it was situated along the east side of the court of the Gentiles. And so although it was part of the temple complex, it was not considered considered to be part of the actual temple, um, not the actual temple proper. Uh, as evidenced by the fact that the Gentiles were allowed into the temple, um, were not allowed into the temple, but could be present in Solomon's colony. All right? So just will give you a little understanding of some of the history of Hanukkah, a little bit of the sense of where, where they physically are in uh, John 10 here. And so they tell Jesus, tell us plainly. And Jesus has, and Jesus has communicated plainly. He's communicated plainly and repeatedly. That he's the Messiah. These Jewish leaders, they're the epitome of the prophecy in Ezekiel 12, verses 1 to 2. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, you're living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear. For they are a rebellious people. They got Jesus not only walking in their midst, they got Jesus dialoguing with them. They got conversation with the king of kings and lord of lords. And they're not getting it. I mean, man, oh man, they got eyes, but they can't see. They got ears, but they can't hear. And they're saying, tell us plainly. So, so far in John's gospel alone, Jesus clearly states, first to the Samaritan woman um, who questioned him concerning the Messiah uh, in John 4. Jesus tells her, I am he. In John 4, 26, and throughout John's gospel, he tells the Jews, I am the bread of life. In John 5, I am the light of the world. In John 8, I am the gate. In John 9, excuse me, 10, verse 9, and that I'm the good shepherd. In John 10, verse 11, they could not understand that Jesus was telling them they were the Messiah because of their assumptions concerning the Messiah. Their assumptions blinded their eyes and dulled their ears. They expected the Messiah to come in a a package in a certain way that would fit neatly into their theological grid. And when that didn't happen, they couldn't see him. They couldn't hear him, no matter how many times. Think about it. I mean, we're in chapter 10 here. You know, in all but two of the chapters in, in John's Gospel, there's some kind of contention with the Pharisees. In in all these chapters, there's been my point is this: there's been lots of dialogue with these guys. This is not the first conversation they're having. This is not the first time he talked to them. They've, They've had conversation after conversation after conversation. He has spoken to them in a variety of different ways. Like any good preacher, he'll make the same point again and again and again in as many different ways as possible until people hear. They still don't hear. Why? Because they don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. Because they're not hearing what they want to hear. If you don't hear what you want to hear, you, sometimes you don't hear anything. And they, even with God standing right in front of them, can't get through. So here Jesus clearly spells out the separation between himself and the Jewish leaders. Verses 25 to 29. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep, he goes on to say, this is what identifies his sheep. My sheep will listen to my voice. I know them. They know me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus says, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. The works that Jesus did communicated that he was from God. That that he was true to his word. His actions backed up his words. The Jewish leaders are tired of Jesus' figures of speech. They haven't heard him say plainly to them, I am the Messiah. So he did tell it to the Samaritan woman, which is telling all by itself. You can tell this outcast who's outside your religious camp, who's despised, who's rejected, who's considered a half to them he can speak plainly. To the Pharisees he can't. Well, why is that? Because Jesus knows their heart. They're not asking the question, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? So that they can change their ways, lay down their lives, and follow Jesus like Peter and Andrew and James and John did. That's not why they're asking him to tell him plainly. They want him to tell him plainly so that they can have his testimony on record to use it against him and justify killing him. That's why they're asking, tell us plainly. They want to hear him say the words that prove their point so that they can advance their political agenda. And Jesus is just too swift for them. He sees their trap. He's not going to walk into it. He says, I did tell you in verse 25, because if you put Jesus' words and his deeds together, the message is incredibly plain. The problem isn't his lack of clarity. The problem is their lack of trust, because verse 26 tells us. They're not his sheep. So they just want to hear Jesus say the words so they can use the words against him. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. Their lack of belief or their lack of actual true trust betrays the fact that they're not Jesus' sheep. So after saying that these Jewish leaders are not his sheep, Jesus describes some of the blessings. He repeats some of the blessings that he's already communicated earlier that are available to people who are his sheep. They hear his voice. He, they're known by him. They follow him. It says that here in verse 27 as well as verses 3, 4, 14, and 16 earlier in chapter 10. They have eternal life. It says that here in verse 28 and also in verses 9 and 10 earlier in chapter 10. We looked at those the past few weeks. But here Jesus adds a profound statement that he hadn't mentioned earlier on in the chapter. Just dramatic, powerful statement. Just incredible sense of this emphasis of security that comes to being one of Jesus' sheep. Verse 28, Just, I mean, if this isn't underlined in your Bible, you got to underline this one. Yeah, I remember this one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, both in the natural and the spiritual, sheep were in danger. They were in danger from thieves and robbers and wolves, right? So these words just have great comfort. They would understand it metaphorically, and the impact—the profound impact spiritually. This statement ought to rock some of our theology. I don't know about you. I've been a Christian a long time. Now, this is issues would settle for me a long time ago. But boy, there was a big question: Can somebody lose their salvation? Right? Well, I don't know. If you factor into that that argument, verse 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. I don't know. I think the argument's settled, right? It's just harder to control people if you can't use fear and guilt and shame to think that, you know, if you don't do what I tell you to do, you know, you're going to lose your salvation. So you better show up to church every Sunday. You better tithe. <laughs> Come on guys, lighten up a little bit. (laughs) Look, the security of the sheep rests on the shepherd, not on the sheep. Think of all the little kids that came up here this morning. We pray for them to go to their class. Is their safety and security dependent upon them? Of course not. They're they're children. they're, They're tiny. They're toddlers. They're babies. Their security isn't dependent on them. Their security is dependent on us as their parents. As their family. It's the same thing with us and Jesus. Our security in this relationship isn't dependent upon us, the sheep. It's not dependent upon our goodness. This is dependent upon our performance. It's dependent upon his performance. And you know what? He's already told us. He's a good shepherd. He's a really good shepherd. So Jesus' reference to himself as the one able to protect his sheep from all dangers is yet another aspect of the incredible claims he's making in this chapter. But as always, and we've seen this repeatedly throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is not acting on his own apart from the Father. Verse 29 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one. Can snatch them out of my father's hands. So, if you have question about whether or not you're secure in Jesus's hand, get this: no one can snatch you out of the Father's hands either. Just, could there be any more? Could there be an, any any more secure of a place in in all of creation than to be in the hand of God? So again, Jesus honors the Father. <clears throat> We, as Jesus' sheep, are safe in his hands and in the Father's hands. Again, guys, that's really good news. Where are you today? What are you dealing with today? Do you feel like you crossed the line? You've gone too far. It's, you know, you've messed up. There's no redemption. There's no way back. The, the pit is too deep. You know, I'm too miserable. No one can snatch you from the Father's hands. Even you can't snatch yourself from his hands. I remember when my son was little. My son was 10 pounds of energy in a 5-pound bag, okay? This kid would ping all over the place. He'd try to walk through the store with him. I got a grip on his hand. He is, with every bit of energy he's gotten him, he's trying to pull away, right? I got a grip on him, dude. I, I know you're trying hard, you know? I'm about 10 times your body mass you're not going anywhere, you know? <laughs> I'm not, you're my son, I, love I, am, I will not lose my grip on you. I'm just a man. Could you imagine how fiercely intense the grip of the Father, the grip of Jesus, his Son, is on you? That's really good news. That's good news for all of us. That's especially good news for somebody here today. Um, I have I have to take some time to look at the text, but mm, yeah, yeah. Well, look, in in a relationship sometimes there can be um, there there could be ebb and flow. I mean, I I could tell you just in my own journey, absolutely. There have been times I just feel like when I'm praying, I'm whispering right into the ear of God. Those. There were those sweet moments. Other times, I don't know, it feels like my prayers have bounced off the ceiling. <clears throat> and that might be true for the moment. But he has been incredibly faithful to me over the decades of this journey. And so I have so much confidence in his great and extravagant and lavish love for us that when, when our journey is over, we'll find ourselves in his hand. That help us all. No? No, I I, 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 want to agree completely. I want to agree a wholeheartedly with you. I just, that description or something. All right. Maybe we can sit down and open up the text and look at it more together. I'm just not familiar with it off the top of my head. Cool. Tom?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to talk with you at some length on that, if you'd like. Uh, The basic... Uh, problem passages in Hebrews if you understand that the tasted doesn't mean become a believer but like if you came and sat in this church but didn't commit to Christ you would be tasting but you wouldn't have committed to Christ and there's a bunch of passages, the hard parts in Hebrews, if you see it that way then suddenly it starts making sense that there were Jewish people who sat, came to church, if you will, and were kind of observant, but they weren't buying into it. And that may be one of those passages. Talk more. Well, what Jesus said This, I believe anymore.
0: Does <laughs> 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 Tom's insight at, offer any, uh, offer some help? to Do, do do their insights help at all, Aaron? No. A little better than mine?
1: <laughs> I
2: just think you followed them off a little. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't I Just that question what
2: they're trying to say that. Tom? Well, the Hebrew, Hebrews was written to the Jewish people, uh, some of whom had become believers and some of whom had not. And so that's part of, I think, what the author of Hebrews is pointing at is here you have some people who are committed to Christ, and then you have some others and it even talks of tasting like being in the assembly you may have been healed I mean there are people who come to an assembly who don't believe and God still heals them so they tasted of the blessing
1: yeah. and that
2: I think it may be what those passages are referring to you know there's folks you know be careful that you haven't been around it and not made it your own yeah.
0: that's good well, I mean, I, I appreciate that, especially it's, it fits in the context of, of this chapter. There, there are people there. There are Jews here. Some of the Jews who are there are believing in Jesus. We see that by the end of the chapter. And there are others who <laughs> they are picking up stones uh, to throw at him. Some have, some have embraced uh, Jesus to a degree where there's, a, there's a, a relationship of trust there, and there are others who obviously there's no trust. There's no relationship trust you. at Yeah. So, I don't know, but that was helpful. I appreciate the, the dialogue. Thanks, guys. Um, okay, verses 30 to 33. It's okay to go on. Anybody else want to add more to that or any other questions? I really felt like this was a day for dialogue. All right, verses 30 to 33. Jesus declares his unity with the Father. He says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So this is an important statement regarding not only the deity of Jesus, but the nature of the Godhead, the nature of the Trinity. I am the Father and one. There is an eternal unity, uh, an eternal oneness that has has existed before creation, before anything was. There was this this relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know why there had to be three and not just one? Why wasn't there just God the Father, no Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because with just one person, love cannot exist. In order for love to exist, it has to be shared between at least two. Doesn't that make sense? Nadine and I love one another. She expresses love, and that love goes from her to me, and the love that I have for her goes from me to her. That's the only way that love exists. There has to be another. The reason why there's three in one, that the Trinity exists, is because God is love. He is the very essence and nature of love. The father and the son are perfectly one. They've always been perfectly one. They share a relationship of absolute unity. There's no contention. There's no conflict. There's no friction. There's no jockeying for position. There's no politics. Never, ever have the father and son ganged up against the Holy Spirit. Never did Jesus and the Holy Spirit have lunch and say, what are we going to do about dad because he's really going off the rails. Never did that ex- ever happen. They perfectly are in harmony, in sync with one another. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. What a profound statement for him to make! This divine community of love, of intimate relationship perfected exists between them. And get this, we've been invited into that relationship. The reason why God made everything, the reason why he came, the reason why he spoke and said let there be light and that nothing created everything was for this singular purpose. He wanted to have, he wanted to share a relationship of love with us. Why do we give birth to children? We love these kids, right? They are adorable. They just, they come up here for prayer and they just ooze cuteness, right? We just love these kids. We're telling stories over the, over the weekend retreat, and I can remember just a few days after my daughter was born, my favorite thing, I'd lay on the floor, and here's this tiny little infant, and I'd put her on my chest, and her little butt would be up in the air, and her legs would be tucked under, and she'd she'd nestle, nestle her face in my chest, and I would just hold her there, and I loved, I loved feeling her. She would, her breathing would match my breathing. I knew that she could hear my heartbeat, I loved holding her. I loved being a father. One of the most transformative events of my life was Nadine gave birth to Lisa. This insight that it gave me into fatherhood was just, it just rocked my world. I loved holding her. I'm just a man. And I loved my baby girl. I loved when she'd fall asleep on my chest. She didn't have to do anything. She was perfect in my eyes. I didn't need to perform. I didn't need her to behave. I didn't need her to do nothing. Just stay there. Would you can you stay a little forever? Just let me hold you like this forever, right? Words fail. But it's just a sliver. The, the love that God has for us. He created us, like Nadine and I, in partnership with God created Lisa, for that embrace. To welcome us into this perfect family of love between the Father Son and Spirit. That's what this is all about. It is all about relationship. It's all about relationship. It's all about a relationship of unity and perfect love. Anything else? All the other trappings of religion? (laughs) Unnecessary. We could get all that right, but let's and miss this and it would be a waste. Let's not miss this. Because without it, none of the other stuff makes any sense whatsoever. The Pharisees are an example of that. They've perfected their religion. But they've missed the embrace of God. They missed the opportunity for fellowship, for intimacy, for incredible love. Not only did they miss it, they picked up stones to kill him. Talk about missing it. It's just amazing. So again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. The Jews asked for clarity. Jesus gave it to them. He told them plainly that he was the son of God, that he was one with the Father. How much more plain could he be? And what did they want to do? They want to kill him. They didn't like what they heard. They were offended to the point of murder. How mad you got to be that you want to actually kill somebody else? I've been there only a couple times in my life.
1: <laughs>
0: and why? Because it wasn't what they expected. Jesus didn't fit in their Messiah box. So they called the manifest presence of God Almighty blasphemy. <laughs> Astonishing. I've said this before. I think this is a really true statement. The same problem the Pharisees have with the manifest presence of God, manifest presence of God in Jesus, present-day Pharisees have with the manifest presence of God in the Holy Spirit. Holy Holy Spirit shows up in ways and forms that are uncommon to us because it manifests in our body and we laugh or we shake or we cry or we shout or we dance and it offends our social norms. I don't know. Jesus didn't seem to be too concerned about the social norms. I tell you what not too concerned either. Oh, would that all of you would shake and vibrate because the presence of God touched you. Let it be infectious, Lord. (laughs) Come Holy Spirit. So, throughout history, theologically, philosophically, some people have tried to lessen the power of Jesus' statement that I am the Father are one by claiming that he's not He's not uh, claiming that he's actually one in essence with God. The only one uh, in purpose and one in will with God. You know, like any good preacher or minister would be, we'd want to say we're one in the purpose of God. We're one in the will of God. We're doing the things that God wants us to do. We're following after the purposes of God. But if that's all Jesus was saying, why do they pick up the stones? to kill him. They're not picking up the stones because Jesus is aligned in purpose and will with God. They're picking up the stones to kill him because he's aligned in essence with God, that he's actually God himself, that he's the son of God, that he's one with the Father. So Jesus referenced, uh, you know, referred to oneness with the very essence of God and they knew it and they hated him for it to the point of murder. The move to stone Jesus is, is the proof. Now listen, I'll try and make this point another way. God wants you and me to be one with him. That's what this is all about. And we'll see more of this in John Gospel down the road, but I've got to reference some of the things that Jesus said in John 17, verses 10 and 11. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says all, this is, this is conversation be- between two members of the Trinity. These two who have been eternally one and who are absolutely synchronized in, in heart, in essence, in purpose, in will. This is what Jesus says to his father. We get to listen in. He says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So that they may... He's talking about us. The they in this, in this statement, so that they may be one as we are one. Meaning that with the same um, expression of oneness, the same example, the same sample of oneness that is shared between Father and Son, that we would have that same oneness with them. Suddenly, my understanding of Christianity, my expression of the Christian faith, it just explodes. It's got to be more than Wednesday night Bible study and Sunday morning church, right? Oneness with God? My life ought to be a little less ordinary. (laughs) No? Verses 20 and 21 in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone, not the disciples, not the 12 who have been with him all this time. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. We're the ones, you and I, everyone who's lived all these the last 2,000 years, we're the ones who believe in him through their message. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Could it be any clearer? I'm not making this stuff up about the Trinity and that we've been invited into this relationship. It's crystal clear right here in the Word. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may know that you've sent me. Could it be that part of the reason why the world looks on the church with disdain is that we've missed this relational aspect of what Christianity is really supposed to be all about. Could it be? I think it could be. Because I mean, nobody taught me this in Sunday school. <laughs> we didn't talk about this. So such oneness can't exist without a quality of essence. And all believers have this quality, have this equality, even as the Father and Son have that equality, that oneness between man and God. So another verse, Galatians 3, verses 26 to 28. So in Christ Jesus, Scripture says, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave or free, neither male or female. Why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a oneness in him that I don't think we've begun to explore the ramifications of. So what if, what if the Christian life isn't about do's and don'ts? What if it isn't about rules and regulations? What if it has nothing to do with attendance and tithing? What if it's all about oneness with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? What if it really is all about relationship? I think it really is. What would the implications of that be just in our own community? In your own family? In your walk alone with God? Transformative. Profound. Earth-shattering. You might shake a little bit. Like that. (laughs) Verses 34 to 39. Jesus reasons with them on the basis of Scripture. Quoting from Psalm 82 and his works. Jesus answered them, is, not, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So this is a really amazing scene. This is an incredible scene. Try and picture it. They're standing there with stones in their hand. They're ready to kill Jesus, right? The, um, the um, amazing restraint that he exercises, the power that he has, right? Could he not call down fire from heaven and there would be cinders on the floor? Remember later on when, when the soldiers come to take him, he says, I am he, and they all fall down on the ground. Could he not do that at this point? A-a- among any other number of things he possibly could have done. But what does Jesus try to do in this case? He tries to reason with them. He, he, what amazing grace he extends to these people who, who have been his opponents to the point He wants to kill, they want to kill him. Yet he still tries to reason with them. They're standing there with stones ready to kill Jesus and he's calmly trying to help them see their error. There's a sovereign calmness that comes from being centered in God's will. This is true meekness. One of the things we talked about in the passage retreat this past weekend was meekness. It was a reoccurring theme. And one of the things that was communicated is meekness is not weakness. That meekness is is power under restraint. Jesus is being meek here. He's got power. He's got limitless power. But he's restraining himself. He's being meek to these people. Meekness, here's a couple of good word pictures for meekness. I remember reading years ago in some book somewhere that meek means if an archer has a bow and he, and he pulls back the arrow. And so it's that, it's that tension where power is under restraint. He hasn't released the arrow yet. He just has the bow pulled all the way back. Power under restraint. That's what it means to be meek. A more modern day picture might be a sniper that's got a target in the crosshairs. You can take him out in a second. He's got the power to do it. He chooses not to pull the trigger. That would be meekness. I'm looking at Jesus here. He's reasoning with people who have stones in their hand. And he's choosing not to pull the trigger. He is graciously calling them to reconsider, for they know not what they do. These men are seeking to kill the one who's offering them life, offering it to them even in the midst of their attack against him, their political attack, their verbal attack, and now the pending physical attack. Grace it just shines brightly in this moment. We have an amazing God who offers amazing grace. So Jesus goes on to say, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God. So just to explain that a little bit, in judges of the judges of Psalm 82 are called God's small g because in their office they determine the fate of other men. Also in Exodus 21.6, 22.8 and 9, God calls earthly judges gods with small g. Jesus is saying, if God gives these unjust judges the title of gods because of their office, why do you consider it blasphemy that I call myself the son of God in light of the testimony, my own testimony, and the works that I've done? Why would you call that blasphemy? He's trying to speak their language. He's trying to use their text to make his point. He's trying to speak to them in a way that they can understand but they don't have ears to hear, and they don't have eyes to see. So Jesus is not taking the statement, you are gods, in Psalm 82, and applying it to all humanity, as maybe our Mormon... um, as maybe Mormons would do, and try to apply that to all believers. The use of the term gods in Psalm 82, it's metaphor, it's metaphoric language. Jesus loves to speak metaphorically, parabolically. Jesus is using it here to expose both the ignorance and the inconsistency of his accusers. So wrapping up, verses 40 to 42. Many people believed Jesus. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though Jesus never performed, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So despite the considerable... Heavy-duty, religious, social, political influence of the Pharisees. You know, the fact that the Pharisees, you know, Jesus proves that they're blind in John 9, that they're bad shepherds in John 10. In, fight, in spite of the, of the huge influence that they have, many people still come to Jesus. Guys, the work of God goes on. Though there's opposition to it, though man opposes it, his work goes on. God's work always goes on. So, what's our Monday morning takeaway? As I said earlier, what if the Christian life isn't about the do's and goats and the rules and the regulations? What if it really is all about oneness with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? What if it really is about, what if it really is all about relationship? So do this for me for a minute. Close your eyes. Think about... Think about the healthiest relationship you've ever had. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a sibling. Maybe it's a really close friend. Maybe it's a spouse. What's the healthiest relationship you've ever experienced in all of your life? What made it healthy? Was there honesty, authenticity? Was there quality time together? Was it fun? Was it intimate? Think about that healthy relationship and let that inspire you to find creative ways to cultivate healthy relationship with God. Let that inspire you to find creative ways to engage with God. Take what you've learned from the healthiest relationships in your earthly life. And apply those same dynamics. Engaging with this God who loves you lavishly and extravagantly. My encouragement to you is this. Start anywhere and cultivate friendship. Friendship with God. I don't know if there's any higher place we can go. Cultivate friendship. Talk to him. Listen. Jesus tells us in this chapter a couple of times, He speaks to his sheep. They hear his voice. They know him. Talk to him. And let it be a dialogue. After you've talked to him, listen. See if he speaks back to you in one way, form, or another. Then talk some more. And listen again. Maybe write it down. Cultivate that relationship. Let's pray. Father, as I read your word, I'm convinced that there's a circle of pure love that's shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit, that you share among one another and that you've invited us into that relationship. Lord, show us the way in. I don't think I've experienced one one hundredth or 1% of what is actually available. Lord, show us the way in. Help us. Help us to engage with you. Help us to cultivate friendship with you. Oh God, help us. Give us eyes that can see. Give us ears that do hear. We all agree that you are our shepherd, that you're my shepherd. You're our individual shepherd. As your sheep, Lord, we ask that you, you said you speak to your sheep, speak to us, your sheep. just as a teachable moment. Scripture speaks about the gift of tongues. We're in public settings. God would give a gift of a tongue, an unknown language, a spiritual language, to a person in a public assembly just like this. And they'd speak out that tongue. And then the instruction that we get from Scripture is to wait and listen for an interpretation of that tongue. I think it was two two Sundays ago, At the end of the service, I prayed, I said, Lord, speak to us. And as soon as I said that, Angie prophesied in tongues. I find it interesting that this morning, at the exact moment I said, God, speak to us, she did it again. I think God has something to say. Let's take a moment and listen. Lord, would you give us the interpretation of the tongue? What would you say to us, Lord? When uh, when this happens, there's more than one interpretation. Does anybody else feel like there's something they'd like to add, Carolyn?
3: mm Control, control, control! we're protecting ourselves from too long, and we're and we're protecting ourselves from God Himself. You know, and um, unfortunately, um, it, it robbed us. It caused pain to us as as His children, and we haven't really received a, a, any amount of what He wants to give us. But I believe the Lord's breaking. But vulnerability. You know the armor of God is on the front of you. So do not let the enemy intimidate you because when you turn around and you run from him, your back is the place that's not covered. And too often we turn around, we run from him instead of running forward to him and embracing with the power of God and the authority of Jesus what the enemy tries to attack against us. So as we go in God's grace and mercy and like a child is the key. So that's where the vulnerability comes in because we want him to show up. It's not about you and I and what we're doing, it's about what he's doing. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So that being said, I think that some of the stuff that to feeling in the spirit, some of the things that I've been preaching about for a year and a half, he's unraveling with us. In black of white, we're going to turn
0: Thank you, Carolyn. Tom, did you have something else? It looked like you had your, your scripture in your hand. I've seen that posture on you before. Did you have something? No. Okay. Control,
1: control, go of control, let go of control, let go of control, let go, of control.
0: Let go, of control. Let go of control. Anybody here struggling with control? control. Anybody feel uncomfortable. I haven't experienced this in church before. It makes me nervous. It feels awkward, right? It's okay. Yeah. Sometimes we pray for more God, and He comes in unusual ways. Do I seem nervous at all to you? Do I seem ruffled the least bit by any of this? I've seen all this before. It all makes perfect sense to me. I really think this is God. So, Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Lord, we ask for more of you. Even if it doesn't fit into our nice, neat little church boxes, we still ask for more of you, Lord. Lord, we ask that you bless Angie today. It's not easy to risk. It's not easy to be the first one through the door. So bless her, Lord. Lord, I pray for us that you would enlarge the place of our tent, increase our capacity for you. Lord, I pray that we would be a church, when you would show up, that we would be comfortable with it. Make that so, God. Take us on that journey. So, Lord, give us more of you. Cultivate intimacy with you. Cultivate relationship with you. Lord, take us from here to there. I ask you, Lord, I come boldly before your throne of grace for my life and on behalf of my friends. Lord, we want more. We want more of you. Do it, Lord. Do it, Jesus. But boy, I just, boy, I just really feel the presence of the Spirit. I know it's on Angie. I can see it on this side of the room. I see it in the back in the middle of the room. God's touching different people. So we just wait on you. Come and have your way in us. Come and have your way in us, take us out of our whiteness. Let us not be so white. Take us out of our social convention that resists you being there. Set us free, Lord, set us free. Holy Spirit, come and set us free. Set us free from our opinions. Set us free from our fears. Set us free from our need to control. We're reminded that you're good. We're reminded that you love us. That you really know what you're doing. That you have a plan. Come and have your way, oh God. This ain't your grandma's church. Amen? You guys have an awesome day. I'll see you throughout the week.